right, so as I mentioned, we're in Acts chapter 13 today, and if you've been with us going through the book of Acts, Acts 13 just puts us right at this, this huge transition point. Because up until this point, the, the early chapters of Acts follow primarily, it's, it's following Peter and the other apostles in and around Jerusalem as they understand what it means to be the church. And as, as they understand the gospel and what it means for them, right? If you remember all the way back at the be- very beginning in Acts chapter 1, we have uh, Jesus ascending into heaven. And then Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and, and Peter preaches the first message and the church begins to grow. And the church in Jerusalem just begins to grow bigger and bigger. And then persecution comes and, and the Christians are scattered throughout the region. And then we see those stories about Saul's conversion and, and Peter goes to Cornelius, right? And you, you, we start to have all these little building blocks added on around the church in Jerusalem and, and in Israel. And then comes the realization that the gospel is not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. And the church is wrestling with that. And in these last couple weeks, we've seen the church in Antioch begin to grow. And now as we get to chapter 13, it's this transition point where instead of following Peter and the the church in in Jerusalem, the story shifts. And from here on out, it seems that the rest of Acts is pretty much following Paul as he travels around the whole known world sharing the gospel. And so we get this transition point. And what happens in Acts 13 is, is we see Barnabas and Saul sent out as the beginning of the first missionary journey. And in our time today, we're, we're covering all of chapter 13. Now, all 52 verses, which follow Barnabas and Saul in three different regions of the Roman Empire traveling through who knows how many cities and covering a lot of ground. So before we get into the, the bulk of the message today, which is going to look at Paul's first sermon, we're, we're going to just do kind of a, a quick overview and recap of chapter 13, because there's a lot of stuff happening in here that, that really set the, set the stage and help us understand Paul's message. So again, we begin in Antioch. And this is the church that's been growing, and Paul and Barnabas have spent over a year there. But, but if you remember from the last couple weeks, it was in Antioch that Christians first were called Christians. Right? Because as the church grew, as, as these believers understood what it meant that Jesus was Lord of their lives, that they were living out their faith differently, that the pagans around them started to notice something different and gave them a nickname. Started calling them Christians because they lived differently. They saw that, that this faith that they had, this, this belief that they had, was changing the way that they interacted with the world around them. That, that the people that they knew started to, to look and act and talk differently. There's something real and genuine about their faith. And they gave him this nickname. And so the church just continues to grow. We see this incredible spread of the gospel throughout Antioch because this church is just growing up. And, and as this church continues to meet together, study God's word together, pray together, they start to care about the world around them. And they send aid down to the church in Jerusalem in a famine. And now we see them again gathered in prayer. And as the church in Antioch prays, they catch the heart of God for the world. And they start to recognize, hey, this hope that we've found in the gospel, that Jesus is who he says he is, that that we have salvation because of him, it's transforming our lives and it's transforming our city. But what about the rest of the world? 
What about the people who haven't heard the good news yet? What about the people who haven't understood the gospel yet? And so their response as they, as they catch God's heart for the world is they send Barnabas and Saul. They send them off to hop on a boat and travel around the Roman Empire. And we see the beginning of this first missionary journey. And so Barnabas and Saul get on a boat and travel to Paphos, the island of Paphos, which is, we know it as Cyprus today. They travel to Cyprus. And again, we think about like, I don't know what it is about the Bible times, but I, I personally, this is one of those little random facts of me. I love geography. I think geography is cool. I like maps and learning stuff. But, but for some reason, when it comes to the Bible and Bible stories, I just kind of like, well, it's, it's Israel. And I just kind of like have lumped it all together. It's just that part of the world. It, and haven't really spent a lot of time paying attention, which I don't know why. But so as I was looking, it's like the, the distance from Antioch to, to Cyprus isn't that huge, but it's still... It's a ways, and I started to kind of map out Barnabas and Saul's journey of what's covered just in chapter 13. And by modern day standards, it's not terrible, right? The, the boat ride from the mainland of, of Syria over to Cyprus isn't that big of a journey, but for Barnabas and Saul, hopping on a ship to sail across the Mediterranean Sea was a big deal. But they come to Cyprus. with this simple driving thing that these people around the world desperately need to understand the gospel. There are Jews scattered throughout the Roman Empire who have been studying God's word or waiting for the promised Messiah, and he's come, and they want to tell him about it. There there are God-fearing Gentiles who who are studying the, the Hebrew faith and saying, looking for the Messiah, they're looking for the promise. And it's here, and they've got, they understand they have the hope of the world. They want to share it. And so they go out. They bring John Mark with them, and they go and look for opportunities to share the gospel. And in each stop, every city they come to, they go to the synagogue. And they go and they share again with all of these, these Jews. They, they start to explain to them the gospel. They explain to them the, the, about the Messiah and all the God-fearing Gentiles that are there. They tell them the hope of the gospel and they continue to move on as they travel. And they come to Cyprus. And they, they land in, in Salamis, which is on the far eastern edge of the island, which makes sense because that's the first part they came to. They, they come there, they go into the synagogue, and then it says they traveled along Cyprus to Paphos, which is on the far western edge of the island. Okay, and again, Google Maps helped me out, but, but even in today's standards, I, I think the roads today are slightly better. Um, but that's roughly a 113-mile journey that they took on foot traveling along, probably stopping at every town along the way, sharing the gospel. By car, that is a two-hour and 15-minute drive. I think our cars are better than the ones that Barnabas and Saul had. But they traveled all along that journey. Again, just traveling day after day, walking to the next town, sharing the gospel, going to the next town. And then when they leave Cyprus, then again, just as you go through these couple of verses, they, 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 in, in Paphos, they talk with the proconsul and they have this run-in with this guy named Elymas who's a sorcerer. But then they travel on to, to modern-day Turkey. And as they head to Turkey, John Mark leaves them and heads home. We'll come back to him in a few chapters. But then they head to Turkey. And again, 
I don't, I'm not sure, from Cyprus to Perga in Turkey is a 304-mile journey, which includes about a four-hour ferry ride. I don't know how the ferries were back then. Again, probably a slightly different traveling distance, right? But they, they travel again, hop in a boat, travel across the sea, end up in Turkey. And then from there, they go again further up into central Turkey to Poseidon, Antioch, which is again another 118-mile journey, which again, with today's roads, is just a three-hour drive. Uh, and if you go on Google Maps, there's actually a, some, some historical ruins. They call it the Paul's Church which may or may not be the place where Paul came. And this is what the, at the end of chapter 13, we see Paul's first recorded sermon. And that's what we're going to spend our time talking about. And it might have been in that location where he went and preached. And so it is, it's incredible. You start to get a grasp of, and this is just the beginning of their missionary journey. But these two men, as they just traveled, driven by the fact that there are people who need to hear the truth about Jesus as the Messiah in the promise of the gospel and the hope that it brings. And it's crazy because when you look at that church, of Paul's church in uh, Antioch in, in central Turkey, as you start to scroll out of it, just, just a quick two-mile drive from there is in Ikea. So I don't, I don't think that was there when Paul and Barnabas showed up. But, but this, this whole region, it's incredible as you start to grasp this area and, and just the heart that God had given them that drove them to preach. And again, every town they came to, they went to the synagogue, they proclaimed the truth about who Jesus was, and then shared the hope that it's not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, that God came. So I want to spend the rest of the time today looking at, at this message that, that Paul preached. Again, it, it's, it's recorded as they go through this missionary journey. We don't see a lot of what happened, just that they stopped in each of the towns. And it's incredible also because this is, it's in the beginning of Acts chapter 13 where, where Saul all of a sudden becomes Paul, right? They're sent out as Barnabas and Saul. And we get to verse 9 and it's the incredible transformation where Saul becomes Paul and, and Luke, the author, records it like this. And Saul, who's also known Paul. And then from here on out, it's Paul. That's it. Right? There, there's this transition that happens, and it's, it's this, now Paul it becomes the, the, the leader. Barnabas had been the one who was kind of driving things, and Saul was along, and, and Barnabas was encouraging. But now God has just gifted Paul to be the proclaimer of his gospel to the world. And Paul then goes on on all these missionary journeys and, and is, is inspired to write all these letters to encourage the churches and encourage the believers as he travels and leaves these people behind. He writes back to them and much of the New Testament are these letters that Paul writes. And so we see this incredible heart that God has given him and, and, and it comes out in this message that Paul preaches. And, and, and this heart, the reason I think it's so important to catch Paul's heart, because as, as Paul preaches this message, it's clearly it's God's heart for the world. And as Paul writes later in, in Philippians 4, 9, he, he encourages people, the things that you see in me, imitate them as I imitate Christ. Right? The things that you see in me that match up with Jesus, imitate those. And that's part of our challenge today as we read this message that Paul preaches to the church. We need to look at it and say, this is God's heart for the world. This is Paul's heart that he caught. And it's what we're supposed to catch too. This is, these are the things that imitate Christ. We need to chase after those things. 
Because God's purpose that's laid out in Paul's message is the same purpose he has for us, his church today. And so Paul begins to preach in this, this message that he's preaching to the, the synagogue in, in central Turkey. As he proclaims the gospel message, he starts in a very similar way to Peter in Peter's first message in Acts chapter 2. Right after the Holy Spirit came and the crowds gathered, <laughs> Peter steps up and preaches to the crowds. And he starts by, by recapping. Here's the history of our people. Here's the Old Testament in summary and here's how it points to Jesus. And the same thing happens with Stephen in Acts chapter 7 when he's being tried and then stoned. Is as he talks to the, the Jewish leaders, he, re, he recaps, here's the Old Testament. Here's our history and how it points to Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul does in this, in this message to, in the synagogue. He recaps the Old Testament. Here's God's promises. Because it's God's purpose. And he's speaking to an audience that's primarily Jewish in the synagogue with all these God-fearing Gentiles who have studied the Scripture. And he says, here's, here's what you know. Here's the Old Testament. Here's the prophets and the law that was written to us. And here's how it points us to Jesus. Because it's all about God as being the driver of everything. It's God's plan throughout history culminating in Jesus. So look at verse 17. As Paul begins his message, he says, verse 17, the God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. It was God in the beginning who chose Abraham. He chose the people of Israel to be his people, that he was going to be their God. And he picked them out of all the people on earth. He picked Abraham. And he called him to follow him. And God made a promise to Abraham. He made a covenant with Abraham, a, a, a promise that God kept. It wasn't about Abraham and his ability to do anything, even though as we read in the Old Testament, we read the story of Abraham, and as we read the recaps of it in the New Testament, we, we learn and, and we see that Abraham was by faith obedient to God. But it wasn't because of obe Abraham's obedience, it was because God made a covenant and a promise with him in the beginning. And we see that promise in Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. That's the covenant that God made with Abraham, the promise he made. Again, not because of who Abraham was or because of his incredible track record, but because God chose him. And pay attention to that last little phrase in that covenant. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. That's the beginning of God's promise that we see laid out in the people of Israel. That God said, I've got a plan. Abraham, you are going to be my people and I'm going to make you into a great nation. And, and through you, all the world will be blessed. And as Paul goes on through his message, he just continues to hit on this fact that God has always provided for his people. Throughout all of their history, he gave them exactly what they needed, when they needed it. Not what they wanted, but what they needed. In Egypt, he made them prosper. And in slavery in Egypt, by his great power, he got them out of slavery. He provided for them. He conquered the nations of Canaan to give them the promised land. And as they floundered in the promised land, he provided judges for them. He gave them kings. And then Paul brings out, he's like, and he gave you King David. 
And it's through the descendants of King David and the promise that God made to David that the Messiah has come. He gave them Jesus. And even though Jesus was rejected and condemned and executed, the people were just fulfilling the words of the prophets. Because God raised Jesus from the dead. That is the good news. That is the gospel message. Right? That's the, the message that Paul had to the people that, that, that God has provided. God has cared for his people time after time after time, and he's up to it again. God is up to the same thing, providing for us exactly what we need when we needed it. He has given us a Messiah. He has provided salvation for us, for all people. Verse 38 and 39 Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament. And Paul writes, Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. And so as Paul preaches this message, he shows them, here's the arc of God's plan. All of history has been pointing to this point. Jesus is the promised Messiah, God's Son. And He died and was resurrected for you. And through Him we have justification for sins. We have forgiveness of our sins for everyone who believes in Him. And so Paul, as he's preaching this message, just proclaims, here's the gospel. Here's how the Old Testament points to this moment, points to this truth. He understood that all the promise to Israel were the foundation to bring hope and salvation to the Gentiles. I remember back to the promise to Abraham, through you I'll bless all nations. Isaiah 49.6 says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Right? This promise was that God didn't choose Abraham and make him a great nation so that he had his own people. He called them, he made them his own so that through them he could bless all nations, that through them he could bring Jesus and fulfill his plan to redeem all of mankind, provide a way of salvation. Because as some of the Jews in Paul's time rejected the truth of the gospel, God grafted in Gentiles to become part of the family of God. And this is what the church in, in Jerusalem, this is what the church in Acts was wrestling with in those first 12 chapters and really throughout the rest of, of Acts. Right? They're, they're continuing to wrestle with this truth that the hope of the gospel is not just for the Jews, but that it's for all people. This is the fulfillment of the promise in that passage in Acts that, that God's people were to be a light to the nations. That as Jesus came and provided the hope that the world needs, that it's his people that were to be the light to the nations and, and proclaim that truth. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. 
If we go back to Acts chapter 10, Peter began to speak in, in verse 34. It says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That is the gospel message. That is the hope of the world. That's the purpose that God had in calling Abraham. That's the purpose that he had with the people of Israel. It was the purpose of Jesus' life and death, and it's the, it was the purpose that the early church was called to, to be a light to the nations, to proclaim to the world around them the goodness of God and the salvation that is found through faith in Jesus alone. And that's what drove Paul, that's what drove Barnabas, is to share that purpose. And that purpose continues today. Right? It's no longer Abraham's job. It's no longer the role of King David. It's no longer the role of Peter and the disciples. It's no longer the role of Paul and Barnabas and the early church. They all lived out by faith what they were called to do. has been passed on to us as followers of Jesus as the church to pick up the charge to be a light to the nations to proclaim the hope of the gospel to proclaim the good news right that Jesus came and did what we couldn't do that God rescued us that God loved us when we were unlovable Right, when we were far from God, when we were enemies with God, He pursued us and He did what we couldn't do and He died in our place. And He offers us salvation. And so anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, who repents of their sins and turns to Jesus, we are made right with God. Because as Jesus came and presents the gospel, the good news, the hope that we cling to, that's what Paul proclaimed. And as he did, people respond because the reality of the gospel message is that it demands a response. The gospel isn't something that you can just ignore. It demands a response. And there really are only two responses to the gospel. Because you see, the reality is, is it demands a response because God didn't just give an option. He, <laughs> Jesus claimed to be God and, and we either believe that Jesus is who he says he was, that he did what he did and that hope is found in no other name, or we don't. And so the two responses are simple. One is that we become disciples, that we surrender to Jesus. The first response to the gospel is we understand the gift that's been offered to us is that we respond by submitting ourselves, recognize that Jesus is Lord. That it's no longer my will, no longer my way, but, but I want to surrender to him. In verse 12, as, as Paul and Barnabas are talking with the proconsul, and he understands the truth of what they're saying, verse 12 says, when the proconsul saw what happened, he believed. 
And in verse 48, as Paul preaches this message to the crowds gathered in central Turkey, it says, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. Those who heard it accepted it as true. And they responded. And they became disciples, which means they submitted to the lordship of God. That God, that Jesus is Lord of my life. It's not my will anymore. Jesus, it's your will. God, I don't, I don't, I don't want to worry about my own way of doing things. I want to do things your way. Jesus, it's not, I, I don't want a mouth that, that proclaims my own goodness or, 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 or self points and tries to make me the center of everything. Jesus, I acknowledge that you are the center of everything and I want to glorify you in everything I say and do. Jesus, I don't want my life to be about me or to, to do anything that, that defames your name. I want my life to reflect your glory and point people to the hope that you bring. Jesus, I don't want my life to be out of sync with you. I want you to take over. Jesus, I need you. God, I don't measure up. Begin to change me. Refine me. Make me like you. Right? Because being a disciple is this process of, of surrendering day by day to Jesus. The Great Commission is not just to become disciples, to become a person who proclaims the gospel and makes disciples. Jesus, help me be a light to the nations. Help me point people to you. Help me be like the Christians in Antioch, who their faith so defined who they were that their neighbors started to say, there's something different here. And the church grew because the gospel is proclaimed. So that's the first response. And the second response is, is that they reject it. When we're, when we're presented with the truth of the gospel, we either accept it or we reject it. It's either true that Jesus is Lord or he's not. He either is who he says he is or he's not. And the Bible doesn't teach us, it doesn't say that, that Jesus is just some good teacher. The Bible teaches that Jesus is God and our response to God is either surrender or we reject him. And we see that in the, in the passage that, in, in again, in the early part of the story, as is, is, is Paul and Barnabas are, are talking to the proconsul, we see Elymas, the sorcerer, who does everything in his power to, to shut them up, to silence them. He directly opposed them in verse 8. Right? He wanted them to be silent because he realized if Jesus is who he says he is, if this is the promised Messiah, then it's not about me anymore. And all of a sudden, Elmas loses all authority, all power that he had, and he didn't want that, and so he tries to silence them. And then verses 45 and 50, as, as Paul proclaims the gospel to the, the synagogue and to the Gentiles, a bunch of the Jewish leaders all of a sudden get jealous. We want this to be about who we are simply because we were born into the right family. And realize that if this gospel is true, if Jesus is the promised Messiah, then I lose all clout and authority. And I don't want that. And so they tried to silence things. They rejected it. But more often than not, our rejection of the gospel isn't so blatant and such an opposition. 
It's much more subtle. I'm not going to make a big deal about it, but I'm, I'm not going to surrender and, and make Jesus my Lord. I'm not going to repent of my sins and surrender to Him as Lord of my life. I'm just going to keep doing things my way. Now, I, I want to point this out because I think this little verse, verse 46 in Acts 13, is it's scary. As the Jewish leaders start to oppose Paul, this is what he says to him. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. You catch that? As Paul's talking to these Jewish leaders, as he's telling them, he just proclaimed the gospel. He's like, look, you've been waiting your whole life. Jesus is the promised Messiah that you've been waiting for. He did what you could never do, and he's, he's offered you this gift of eternal life. He's given you the hope of the gospel. Here it is. And they reject it. They do not consider themselves worthy of eternal life. Verse 46, those those Jewish leaders chose to remain lost and in their sin. You see, I think more often than not, that's the rejection that we have of the gospel. Right, it's not this blatant opposition. I'm going to try to silence everybody. It's just that I don't consider myself worthy. I'm, I'm going to choose to remain lost. I'm going to choose to remain and do things under my own power and continue to fail because I'll never be worthy of the gospel. I'll never live up to the standard. I want to continue to do things my own way, by my own power. I don't need you, Jesus. When presented with the incredible gift, when presented with the reality, as we look at the arc of history, we understand man, the incredible love of God. And when we were enemies of Him, that He loved us. He gave us the law, which we could never keep, and just pointed out and made a glaring error of our sin and our need for a Savior. Jesus came and He died in our place. And through His death, and resurrection, we are offered life. And so many people are given that opportunity and rejected. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Jesus isn't slow in coming. His desire is for everyone to come to repentance. His desire is for people to surrender because he loves us. I don't have to convince you that, that the world is bad. Right? I don't have to convince you that there's evil going on, that, that life is hard and things are not the way they should be. We all know that. Okay? Our desire as followers of Jesus, our desire is, is to be with Jesus. Right? In, in college, one of, one of my, my good friends used to always say, when anything went wrong, he's like, Lord Jesus, take me now. Right? That was his statement. It was, it was great. We, we laughed all the time because we were, we were the opposites. Right? I'm, I'm a small town kid from the Northwest. He's from the inner city in Florida. We meet in Iowa. And we, it was amazing to grow up together and understand how God's love for us 
is true, but, but he had that statement always. I, I, we hear it, Emily and I joke about it all the time, right? And we, we say that, right? So many times like, Lord Jesus, come soon. And that's a true thing, right? We want him to come soon. But this verse reminds us that, that God is patiently waiting. He's not slow. He's not like trying to figure out how to do things. He is waiting because his desire is for people to come to him. And so for us as followers of Jesus, if we have surrendered to Jesus and we have made him Lord of our life, then we're called to be the light to the world. Right, the, the, the message that Paul preached, that, that, that the hope of the world is Jesus and what he's done, that his people are to be the light of the world, that's, that's now our responsibility as the church is to live that out. And so yeah, we say Jesus comes soon, but we also at the same time need to say, Jesus, use me here and now. Because guess what? The world is still lost. There are still people who desperately need to understand the hope of the gospel, who maybe who have never understood the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. And it's us. God chooses to use us to proclaim his truth to the world around us. So what are you doing with it? It's, it's not just my job. It's not just Pastor Matt's job. It's not just the church's job. We are the church. How are you living out your faith? How are you obediently surrendering to Jesus as Lord, repenting of your sin and giving Jesus authority in your life to transform you so that people see Jesus in you? Or maybe what are you doing with Jesus? Have you ever surrendered to him? Have you ever called him Lord? Are you living into the calling he has for you to build up his church and be a light to the world? Or are you choosing to reject the gift and remain lost? Because ultimately that's the choice that we're faced with. Is Jesus Lord of your life or is he not? And if he's Lord of your life, are you living for his glory to proclaim the hope of the gospel to the world around us? What are you doing with Jesus? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you love us. God, we thank you that, that, that you are the hope of the world. That from the beginning of time, you've, you've had this plan to rescue people because you loved us even in our sin, knowing that we would reject you, knowing that, that we could not live up to your perfect standard. Jesus, you, you came and you did what we could never do. You lived a perfect life and you stood in our place and you took the punishment that we deserved and you died for us so that we could have life with you. Jesus, we thank you for the gift that you offer us. Jesus, may we respond to you. May we live, <laughs> recognize that you are Lord. God, we pray that as we do that, as you, we make you Lord of our lives, as we surrender to you, that you would just continue to refine us, to mold us, to reflect you. 
and that you would use us, your people, your church, to continue to proclaim your hope to the world. That more and more people would get to see Jesus and understand the choice that you've given us. Jesus, may we be your church, a light to the world. Amen.